We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back in our study and our journey through Colossians. It has been uh, too long since we have gone over chapter 1. It seems like every time I wanted to come down here to do another podcast, something would always seem to come up, and inevitably it was always something that had to be handled um, or done, or I was just prevented from coming down here to the Discipleship Center to do these podcasts. Um, and so I apologize about that. However, we are, or I am here, and we are going to continue to go through this in chapter 2. Hopefully you were able to listen to chapter 1 as this kind of a foundational piece and moving forward through all of Colossians. And was actually in our uh, journey through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, um, it probably was one of my favorite chapters to actually go through. By the end of it, I was extremely encouraged. Um, and so hopefully you're able to listen to that because, as I said again, it is a foundational piece in moving forward in chapter 2. And so we're going to get right into this. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this verse in verse three, this this part that he says, this mystery that God's mystery, it says, which is Christ. This is the foundation of everything that he's going to talk about in chapter 2. It's this, this small little phrase when he says, God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, all this is simply stated is Christ is the key to unlocking everything in this new covenant. And when, I'm, when I say everything, I mean Everything. He is the, uh, the means by which we could have grace applied to our life. He is the means by which we come into salvation. He is the means or the door in which we can walk through into the salvation. He is the only way, truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father, whether that's through sal- salvation, whether that's to gain wisdom, whether that is to get you know, a dose of grace from the throne of grace to, to have help in time of need. If you are not coming through Jesus Christ, then you will not find anything from God of what you're asking. Christ is the key to everything. Now, there's going to be what we're going to read on a little bit. There's going to be men and women who try to dissuade from that, who try to eliminate Christ as being the cornerstone. And they're going to make it about other things. And maybe not even bad things. That's going to make sense in just a little bit as we go through the rest of this. But I want you to understand, this is the key to unlocking everything. And I want you to understand this as well. In the very next phrase, he says this, In whom, meaning in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this makes me think of Proverbs 25.2. It says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the glory of kings to search it out. 
God will absolutely conceal wisdom. And you have to ask yourself, why does he do that? Why does he um, conceal it? Why does he hide it? It's so that those who really want it will be proven by how they seek after it. You see, this is oftentimes how it is. And you look at Jesus when he talks about it. He says, I teach in parables. Why? So that those who have ears would not hear and those who have eyes would not see. God will absolutely conceal things so that those who are genuine would be proven. This is often also the reason why we suffer for the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-8, he talks about the suffering and the afflictions that we have as a result of serving Christ. And he says, this is to prove you worthy of the kingdom of heaven for which you are suffering. God is proving, he's testing the hearts of the righteous, as the word says. He is proving your, um, your worth, if you will. Even in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says the same thing about himself. He talks about exercising self-control and discipline and doing all these things. And he says... Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in running this race, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not making this a proof text as if somebody's really saved. He's only singularly talking about himself. Lest I myself would be adokimos, and here's what it means. Not approved, used of metals and coins, rejected and cast away. He says... If I'm not going to chase after this, if I'm not going to um, endure through these sufferings and these struggles and these trials and these things and rely upon the grace of God that is amply found in Jesus Christ to get to the other side of it, he says that I'm proving myself. This is Paul we're talking about. He's not talking about other people. He's not talking about a Demas or a, a Hymenaeus or an Alexander. He's not talking about those guys. He's talking about himself. And he says, if I don't, Run this race. And he says then. I myself would be disqualified. Out of chemos. And so in the same manner. God also hides his wisdom. So that those who are genuinely wanting his wisdom. And his understanding. They would seek it out. And they would be given that wisdom. Now James 1 talks about the one who lacks wisdom. Let him ask in faith. Because God wants to abundantly pour it out on you. And that's a true statement. However, we need to understand the rest of it. And it's a key understanding that we need to get into. Even as the rest of this is talking about. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave tossed to and fro by the sea. He says, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from God. He is a double-minded man or a two-spirited man, unstable in all of his ways. So God wants to pour out wisdom. However, he does conceal it in Christ. So that those who are genuinely interested in his wisdom and not their own would be revealed. Now this is interesting because as we go on, we're going to talk about a lot of things called according to human elements or human tradition, according to elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And we're going to find out what those things are, but I want you to understand, Christ is the key to unlocking everything. If you want more of God, if you want more of God's wisdom, if you want more of God's love, that incorruptible love to be manifest into your person, into your spirit, and your soul, then you're going to have to go through Christ. And he is the only means. It's not going to be through your observance of the law of Moses. It's not going to be through your perfect observance of the Talmud. It's going to be through Christ and him alone. All right, so with this, we're talking about that Paul wants them, the the church in Laodicea. He wants the church in Colossae. All those who have not seen him face to face. He wants them to be encouraged, knit together in love. And he wants them to reach 
all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the gnosis, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, I want you to grow in Christ. I want you to abound in knowing him and knowing his word and the understanding of God's mystery, which is unpacked and unfolded and unveiled through Christ and only Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 talks about. He says, we, we behold him with unveiled faces. Not like Moses. Moses didn't get to see Christ with an unveiled face, but we do. That should just kind of saturate in your hearts and your minds just for a moment to think about that. You'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so he goes on, he says, that Christ is this mystery. Everything is unfolded in Christ. Ephesians 1, if you go back to that one and going into chapter 3 of Ephesians, we talked about God's predestined plan to send Christ. Christ is the realization of God's predestined plan. He always meant to send Christ. But it was hidden from the rulers, from the authorities, from the people of this world. It was hidden from them. And as 1 Corinthians 1 talks about, it was even hidden from the Pharisees and Sadducees who knew the word of God, but they did not know the day of their visitation. They did not know that Christ, the Redeemer, the one that was sent for them, was before them. They didn't see it. And off, mostly because they didn't want to see it. He goes on, he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this... He says, I'm telling you that Christ is the center of it all. He is the substance to everything. You want anything from God, you will have to go through Christ. You want forgiveness, you got to go through Christ. You want grace, you got to go through Christ. You want anything that God is offering to mankind, you must go through Christ. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible Arguments, And I think that this is the bane of the church today is that many men and women have deluded many in the church with plausible arguments. Now these words is paralogosmei is the word for delude and you also have pithonologia which is the Greek word for plausible. I'm, I'm not sure how I just rattled those off um, as well as I did. Hopefully that sounded correct as it did to me. Um, but regardless, those are the two Greek terms and how you pronounce them might not be as important as to what they mean. The word for delude is to deceive with false reasoning. And the word for plausible is to have persuasive speech. So let me read it like this. He says, I say this in order that no one may deceive you with a false reasoning with pervasive, or I'm sorry, persuasive speech. He says, there's going to be people who have some really good sounding arguments out there. There's going to be people who say, no, 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 you don't necessarily have to go through Christ. It can be in your own effort. No, 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 you don't have to really go through Christ. It can be through the law of Moses. It can be through the Talmud. It can go through other sources and not through Christ. When Christ says in John, I am the door. Everyone else, you want to come in through a different way, you're thieves and robbers. I'm the door. You want to come into anything that God has, it's going to come through me and me alone. It will not come through Moses. It will not come through Abraham. It will not come through David. It will not come through Solomon. It will not come through any other source but through me. And he says, For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, Do not relinquish what you have in Christ. Don't give in to these persuasive speeches that people would make these plausible arguments. They would, they would deceive you with this false reasoning. And just as Proverbs, what is it? Um, 
It says 16.25, I think it's, it's actually two times in chapter 16 in Proverbs. It says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's only one way to life. And Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to find life in any other means, if you think you're going to find life in your observance of the law of Moses, you are deceived. If you think that you're going to find life in your observance in the Talmud, you're deceived. If you think that you're going to find the way to God through any other means other than through Christ as the key, you are deceived. And you've been deceived probably with persuasive speech. He says, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He says, in the same way that you received Christ, so he's, we obviously know, based off of chapter 1, that we know Paul is talking to people who are true believers. These are people who are in the faith. He watched them, he saw them, he, he knew and has heard about their abounding in faith and love, and he says, I have joy in my heart because of you. I praise God because of you. You make my work a joy. Because I see your love is abounding, your faith is abounding. Similar prayers he had in the church in Philippi. He says, and as you received him in humility and in submission to his plan, then you need to walk in that same humility and submission to his plan and faith in who he is and what he can do according to grace in accordance with his word. See, oftentimes... You know, we have this realization of our depravity. We have this realization that, you know, God is God and we are not. And we come into the faith and we have tears and we have joy and we have all these things that this mixed bag of emotions that begins to well up inside of us as we receive Christ and Christ receives us. But I think oftentimes then we go into life and we forget. We forget what we were like. We forget who we were before we knew Christ. And we stop walking in humility. We start walking in selfishness or in the flesh. And sometimes we begin to actually lose sight that God is God and we are not. And we become our own gods. We start dictating our own way because we become sufficient in and of ourselves. This was why he rebuked, Jesus did, in Revelation 3, the church in Laodicea. He says, you've forgotten who you were. And who you became in me. And you've resorted back to a life of the flesh of self-sufficiency. And you forgot that I am your only meal ticket to true life. He says, I want you to not just um, come to him in that way. I want you to walk in him. In that faith, in that humility, in that submission to the word. As he talks about in First Peter 5, five when he says that God gives grace to the humble but he rejects the proud. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This, this concept of humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the hand is always symbolic of authority. And at the right hand of God sits the authority of God. And that's where Christ sits. And he says that he has the authority of God over you. So that all who would believe on him and confess him as Lord of their life would be saved. So he says, you come under this authority, you bow the knee, you kiss the hand, which is what the actual Greek word, uh, the terminology means in humility. It's to kiss the hand in adoration or affection, to bow the knee. And we oftentimes forget that. And Paul is reminding them, hey, hey guys, in the same way that you received Christ in that humility and, and in faith and in submission to his word, I want you to keep walking in those things. I want you to be established in the faith just as you were taught. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Here he goes again. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now this is an interesting um, thought that he says here because I want you guys to understand something. He is hammering home to them this idea that they could um, be led astray. These true believers, he's, 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 the way that he's talking about them in chapter 1, he has a belief and understanding that these are true believers. But he is giving a, um, a very healthy but firm warning to them to say that you guys do not need to, um, to be led astray. And I'm trying to find this passage. This is kind of why I was stumbling over my words um, just a little bit. Let me see if I can look it up real quick um, if I've got some service down here. But in, I think it's in one of the Corinthians. First or Second Corinthians, I'm trying to look it up. Oh, Second Corinthians 11. I was off by one chapter. I thought it was chapter 10. So in Second Corinthians chapter 11, here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now, you could maybe make an argument that the church in Corinth was a little less clear as to whether or not they were genuine believers. Because there will absolutely be people who think that they're believers in Christ. And on that last day, God's going to say, I never knew you. Because you didn't come through Christ. But here, he says this. He says in verse 2, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy. It's not even his jealousy. It's a divine jealousy, and the same type of jealousy that God has over the Spirit that He causes to dwell in us, as James 4 talks about. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Paul is warning them in the same way that he's warning the church in Colossae to make sure that no one takes you captive. Nobody ensnares you. Or as Galatians 5.1 puts it, that you don't return to a yoke of slavery. That they would do so by philosophy, which is the Greek word philosophia. It means a love of man's reasoning and understanding as according to worldly or fleshly ways. There's some smart people out there that can really turn and twist the scriptures to make it sound good. And they can, they can persuade people. That's why Romans 16, 17 through 18 talks about it. He says, you need to watch out for those people. They're people who are causing divisions from what the Spirit's wanting to do of leading people into truth. They're actually leading people away from it. And they're creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine that is truth. And he says, avoid them. They're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites and their own bellies. Paul says, I know, even warned the church in in Acts, I forget what the chapter is, but he says, after my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in and they're going to seek to lead you astray. Paul knows that Satan is out there the same way that he was with Adam and Eve, trying to lead people away from, did God really say? And he had some persuasive speech and he deluded people with plausible arguments, with philosophies of man, human reasonings according to worldly ways. And he deluded them and he's trying to delude you and I. And we must not let him. This is why we have to be rooted in the faith. We have to be built up and established in Christ. And the only way to do that is to press into him, to know his word. What was Christ's response to Satan every time Satan tried to even use the word and twist it against him? It was, it's also written. 
It is written. Jesus knew the word of God. That was his, that was his weapon that he came against. His only offensive weapon. And the only offensive weapon that we have is the sword of truth. God's word, the sword of the spirit. And he responded every time with knowing what the word said. Even when Satan tried to, to twist Psalm 91 and miss it, the context of the passage, Jesus knew it. And we need to know it as well. So the warning that Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 6 goes into, of, of we should be teachers by now. And we've become dull of hearing. Many people in the church today have become dull of hearing truth because we've, we've fallen victim to persuasive arguments, worldly reasonings, according to human traditions and human precepts. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He goes on with empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. That word for elemental spirits is stoichion. It means orderly in arrangement. Arrange, uh, arranging things is according to worldly ways. It's that which was first born. Now, if you've heard me talk before, maybe you're a first-time listener, then uh, you probably haven't ever heard me talk before about it, but there is a rule in Scripture called the firstborn and the secondborn. The firstborn is that which proves the insufficiency of the flesh. The secondborn is what proves the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the heavenlies. All right, so you've got Saul, the first king, firstborn. David, the second king. He was the one that proved the power of God. Saw the inadequacies of the flesh. You have Old Covenant, New Covenant. You have uh, the firstborn Adam, the secondborn Jesus. You have you know, um, uh, Cain and Abel. You've got uh, Jacob and Esau. You've got all these firstborns who are synonymous and, and paralleling to this rule that's all throughout Scripture. That the firstborn is rejected because of its insufficiency according to the flesh. And the secondborn is accepted because of the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit or of the heavenlies. And you'll find this all throughout in Scripture. Okay, And this one is talking about according to the elementary, uh, elemental spirits of the world. It's that which was the firstly order. You could say flesh and spirit. The flesh came first, then the spirit. Right? A person who is born, they are born and they're dead in their trespasses. They are dead in their flesh. They are dead apart from the Holy Spirit. But once the Holy Spirit comes in them... Then all of a sudden there's life, right? Because the flesh has been crucified, the second born. But this element of spirits, he's going to actually refine it a little bit more coming up soon, going on into 16. He refines a little bit more about what he's talking about. And essentially it's going to be in the law of Moses or in the Talmud as an example of it. Let's keep going and see what he says. He says, and not according to Christ, meaning that these other things are going to lead people astray because they're going to seem to have some sort of religiosity to it, to where it's going to be that you can actually earn these things. You can, you can actually earn God's favor on your life. And while there is a, a semblance of earning God's favor on our life, and I don't have time to get into that one, just understand that He gives grace to the humble, right? There is a, sen- a sentiment of earning God's favor. Um, not in this context. And He says there's going to be people who are going to try to lead you astray to where it becomes about something else other than Christ. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Catch this. This is fascinating. He says, in him, meaning Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness of who God was and is dwelt in Christ. Okay? Just like with with Stephen, and, and stay with me on this one. Just like with Stephen, it says he was full of the Spirit. Because check this next thing out that he says, and you have been filled in him. 
He says, the whole fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ, fully manifested in complete perfection in Christ. And he says, and uh, you've been filled in him. You've been placed in Christ. And Paul wants us to understand that the fullness of God can dwell in us too. And you might think, uh, that, that sounds like heresy. You're, you're, you're trying to say that I can have the fullness of deity dwell in me? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit not the fullness of God's presence? Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4. No, chapter 3 at the end of it. He says now uh, in verse 18, May have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God, of God, I'm sorry, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's writing to Christians that they may be filled with the fullness of God. So Jesus had the fullness of deity dwell in him bodily. And he says, and you've been filled in him so that you too can have the fullness of God's spirit put inside of you and fully manifested. Just as it talked about with Stephen when it says he was full of grace and he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is an encouraging message. And you might not, you might be under the masses today where many don't think that that's possible. I'm here to tell you the word of God says otherwise. That is an encouraging message. You and I who have the Spirit of God in us. We might have our hiccups. We might have things that need to be sanctified in us and refined in us. But the authority and the ability to walk as Christ walked lives in you. You can put to death everything of the old nature and live fully in the Holy Spirit. That is a promise by God and a commission that he gives to us to strive for each and every day of our life. And he goes on, he says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's the, the precursor to everything he's about to state. It was spiritual, it's not physical. Circumcision of the flesh, you could be circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. You could be circumcised on the eighth day, you ain't going to get into heaven. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. The premise here is that he says it was made without hands. It wasn't human. It wasn't done in a natural way. It wasn't in the flesh. This was something spiritual that your heart was circumcised. He goes on, he says, By putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Notice it wasn't by baptism. It wasn't water baptism that saved you. Remember, the context of this is something spiritual. And Jesus talks about it where he says, there are actually three baptisms referenced in Scripture. One is water, one is spirit, and one is sufferings. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my suffering until it is accomplished. John the Baptist says about Jesus, he says that I baptize with water for the forgiveness of sins, but he who comes after me is mightier than I. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the premise that is talking about here is this spiritual understanding that when you were baptized or you were washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3 says, when you were circumcised with the circumcision not made with human hands, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God. This is all spiritually symbolic of what the physical represented, both the fleshly circumcision, the water baptism, and being raised up. All fleshly parallels to what actually saves you, just as Jesus tells Peter when he says, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus must be the one that washes you with the Holy Spirit for you to have a share in heaven. 
And he goes on, he says, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, meaning your intentional and rebellious sins, he says, um, and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, this is an important concept for us to unpack briefly. This having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Um, there's a, an ideology that's out there that talks about your past, present, future sins are all wiped away and forgiven at the moment of your salvation. I can't agree with that. I think that as Romans 3, uh, what was it, 23, 25, somewhere in there, 23 or 25. If you look at that Greek word, it means sins committed previously. Okay, When you come to Christ, and this is key for us to understand. Otherwise, there's other scriptures that are incongruent with this. And I'll show you that in a second. If all of your past, present, future sins are wiped away at the moment of your salvation, and that's what this verse is talking about, all of your trespasses, that means that you could not give an account for those things. They've been forgiven, they've been wiped away, and now you have the blood of Christ as your righteousness, and you will stand before God complete, as what most people say. However, Hebrews 10, 26-31 says a different story. The author, including himself, it's an inclusatory passage. It's not an exclusatory passage in which he's excluding himself from the truth of the context of the passage. He's including himself. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The author of Hebrews includes himself in that. And you know what trespasses are? It's the one who knows the right thing to do and chooses to walk contrary to that. For if we know the right thing to do and fail to do it for us, it is sin. James 4.17. So in Hebrews 10.26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, the word titles that a trespass. And he says, And you will give an account. So let me ask you this, believer. How are all of our trespasses forgiven, past, present, future sin? And yet, Hebrews 10.26 says, we'll give an account. Christians, post-salvation, we will give an account. And not only just an account, he says, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of truth or witnesses. How much worse punishment will we think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, past tense, meaning you have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, and has outraged the spirit of grace. And it goes on in verse 31, God will judge his people. It's beyond dispute that Hebrews 10, 26-31 is referencing a believer giving an account for trespasses. So what I deduct from this is that all of your sins that you committed and your ignorance and your rebellion to God, all these things in which you said you put a hand up to God's face, when you come to him and you say, Father, forgive me, and you humble yourself before him. You come into this salvation, pledging your life to him as Lord. He says, my child, all those things that you did in the past, wiped away. I forgive you. But moving forward, you have a responsibility. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. You will give an account. The question is, what is that going to look like? And so, I don't have time to go into the fullness of what that's talking about. I wanted to, to throw that out there. 
He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is a Greek word, keragraphon. It means a handwritten bond, a note stating funds are deposited. Um, I want you to understand that there's a past tense here. He says this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the cross accomplished something in our life. And it's something that Ephesians 2 talks about that I'm going to go into and look at in just a second. Before I, uh, before I do that, though, I want to keep reading. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, probably meaning demonic rulers and authorities, um, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or by the cross. All right, so the contextually, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, it might say in him or by the cross. But in all reality, it's kind of one and the same because who's the one who went to the cross? The cross was just a, 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 a symbol. Without Christ on the cross, it meant nothing. Okay? Anyone could have gone to the cross and not achieved being a ransom for many. It was Christ. So whether your translation says by it in the cross or in him in Christ, it's still one and the same. It's all in Christ. Remember, he's the key. He says, therefore, because this record of debt, according to this firstly order, stood against you, you were dead in your trespasses. He says, therefore, let no one disqualify, I'm sorry, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. All those things have nothing to do with the first worldly order of flesh or of the natural man. They have everything to do with the law of Moses. Nobody else observed a Sabbath except the Jews. These festivals that he's talking about, these are festivals that are laid down in the law of Moses. This new moon that he's referencing, this was a, 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 I don't have time to go into the details of it, but it's a law of Moses type thing. The food and the drink, that was the, the cleansing things within the law of Moses. The regulations of food and drink that Romans 14 talks about. So what's interesting is, is he's bringing the context of this passage. He's refining this firstly order. And he's now detailing to us what he's talking about. And essentially this is what he's saying in Colossians chapter 2. He says Christ is the key. You want to have a, a righteousness in the end that doesn't depend on the law of Moses? You have to be found in Christ. This is what Philippians 3 is all about. And so he says, there's going to be people who come and they're going to say, no, 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 we still got to keep the law of Moses. That firstly ordered, that which came first. The law that came first, passed down through Moses. And isn't it funny that Jesus says something greater than Moses is here, something greater than Solomon is here? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Moses was not the way to God once Christ came. He was the way to God until Christ came. This is where Galatians 3 comes in. Listen to what he says. Because there was the cross and Christ being on it as the atonement, as the sacrifice. To usher in this new covenant, Hebrews 9 says that once the person who, who um, declared this testament or declared this will, it says it doesn't go into effect until the death of the one who wrote it happens. So until Christ shed his blood, the new covenant could not be established. That's why he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Talking to the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I'll let you look up the Greek words on that, katergeo and dogma. He says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
So when he says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, when he says that he nailed these things to the cross with its legal demands, he's talking about specifically the law of Moses and its legal demand over you. He nailed it to the cross because it was through Christ on that cross, shedding His blood, that actually abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's referencing specifically the law of Moses. That's no longer our governing authority when we come into Christ now that faith has come. You're not bound to the law of Moses for its cleansing rituals, for its avenues to get you to God. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the key. You can try to go through the law of Moses all you want to and you're not going to get any closer to God because a body he's now prepared for us as Hebrews 10 talks about. This is what he goes on to say. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It is a spiritually applied substance now. Those things of the flesh, those things of the natural order, those firstly ordered things, those are no longer what you were done. Those were a shadow that was looking forward to Christ, that was actually propelling the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come, <laughs> why would we ever want to go invest in the shadows when we have the substance? Why would we ever want to go chase after shadows? You know, I, I think of that old childhood story of Peter Pan where he's chasing his shadow, right? Only got him into trouble. And the concept is that the shadow comes into the room of uh, uh, Wendy, right? And if you know anything about this story, the shadow comes into the room of, of Wendy. And Peter Pan comes chasing the shadow. And he's trying to hold the shadow. The shadow escapes. It flees. Because you're never going to actually grab hold of anything when you're trying to tackle shadows. But when she saw Peter, she found the substance. And she wasn't worried about the shadows anymore. She found the substance that she could cling to and grab the hand of, and he took her back to Neverland. And that might be a lame analogy, and it might be something that doesn't even resonate with you, but it's what popped in my mind. And I think if so many people are chasing shadows out there, they're looking to the law of Moses, and they're totally missing the key. They're missing the substance. They're missing Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which asceticism is essentially the, the, um, the refraining of anything. Okay? So oftentimes it's like, no, 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 you can't eat that. You, you, you can't do that because you, know, um, you have to be an ascetic on that one. Even First Timothy in chapter 4, he says that now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, meaning the faith in Christ, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence or asceticism from foods that God created be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The word of God has stated as Romans 14 talks about that everything created is good. Going into Genesis chapter 7 and 8, you're going to find Noah and his ark. And it says, when they came off the ark, they've been ushered into this new salvific experience through, man, through the man of righteousness, the one who says he's going to give us a rest from our works, which is what his name means. They come into it and God tells them this. He says, everything that moves shall be food for you. Everything. He doesn't list it as there's a clean and unclean there. He says, everything that moves, even Moses is the one writing this. Everything that moves shall be food for you. The word of God has declared that through Christ, everything is now clean for you. 
But there's going to be people with persuasive speech who are going to try to come and say, no, 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 no. Moses told us. Moses said. And they're going to persuade and they're going to delude you and take Christ out of the equation. He says, you must not let them do that. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worshiping, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, which is the Greek word sarx, and it means flesh. Not, not even, we oftentimes look at sensuous as just something that's, oh, oh, oh that's, that's bad, right? This is just simply saying by his fleshly mind. It's what's set on him, it's what's set on the natural course, it's what's set on the firstly order. It says, and not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Makes me think of Ephesians 4, and he says the whole purpose of eldership in the churches today is to promote a growth and a maturation into the image of Jesus Christ. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world that firstly ordered that which came first, if with Christ you died to those things, Remember he says that you have now, um, the, the, the law of commandments expressed the ordinances has been abolished in Christ. And now he's taken the two, Jew and Gentile, he's now made them one new man. He says, if with Christ you died to those elemental spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. He says, why are you submitting to these things? Why are you going into them thinking, you know, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I still have to submit to those things of the Talmud or the Law of Moses. And that's just some examples. I think contextually specific to this chapter is the Law of Moses. And then by extension, the Talmud. But I think this could be referencing several different things. You know, I'm looking for a passage. Um, I thought it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm kind of skimming through it as I'm talking to you guys. Oh yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, quote unquote. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, quote unquote. But not all things build up. What's he talking about there? He's talking about, look, in Christ... The things within the law, those ordinances that were there to try to establish uh, uh, you know, your pathway to God, if you will. It's all become lawful for you. Things, as what he says, specifically to the things of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Things that perish as they're used. He's talking about food and drink. He's talking about these things of, oh no, if you ate a pig, you would be unclean. Those have been done away. Those ordinances... Because only through Christ do you come through God, or do you come to God. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The premise that Paul is trying to state here is make sure that people don't delude you, deceive you with human reasoning or things according to a firstly order that no longer has bearing. Does this mean that I can go and I can, you know, I can go now uh, uh, have an affair? I can go and be sexually immoral? 
I can go join my body to a prostitute? No, we know the word says otherwise. Does that mean I can go lie or I can go do other things? No, we know the word says otherwise. Listen to what he says as he follows up in verse uh, 1 Corinthians 24. I read 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Here's what he says in 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He says, that's, that's what it's all about. The one who walks in this law of Christ, a law of humility in which we count others more significant than ourselves. The one who walks in love. You're doing good. That's what it's about in accordance with the word of God. Those who walk in love and speak truth in accordance with his word. You're doing, you're doing what you're supposed to. You're not under any law of Moses. The law of Moses was laid down for the unjust, for the ungodly, as Paul tells Timothy. And it's not a bad thing if one uses it lawfully with understanding Christ is the key. He unlocks all the wisdom of God. He unlocks all the understanding of God. He unlocks it all. And if you're trying to go back and observe the law of Moses without Christ being the key to unlocking what really is, then you will be led astray. I've got a lot of people who, have, who I know have fallen victim to the Hebrew roots thing. And I think many people love Jesus. They absolutely honor him, but I think they've been deluded. Do I have a problem with somebody who wants to keep the Feast of Booths? Or, uh, do I have a problem with somebody who wants to keep a Sabbath? Nope, don't have a problem with that at all. As long as it's honoring Christ. And it's in honor of Christ. Understanding that he is our Sabbath rest. And the whole principle of the Sabbath was a foreshadowed understanding that six days you shall work and the seventh day you shall rest. And it's corresponding back to Genesis chapter 1 in which God for six days worked and on the seventh day he rested. And what's funny about that is that Jesus says that from the day of creation my, my father and I have been working up until now. God never took a day of rest after that. He was trying to show us something. He was trying to show us that God prepared and accomplished everything that would be needed to come into this Sabbath rest on the seventh day. He did it all. We did nothing to warrant this salvation to be offered to us. And when we come into Christ, we come into that seventh day rest. That's what he was foreshadowing and prophesying. Not for us to keep a Sabbath day as if it was some regulation once we come into Christ. Under the law of Moses, yes. But even Jesus himself says the Sabbath was not made. We were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. It's something that we could partake in. And understanding that Jesus is our Sabbath, oh, that brings a whole new level to understanding of what God wanted for us with the Sabbath rest. And so I don't have a problem if people want to, you know, observe the festivals, if they want to, you know, go by the Sabbath rest, if they don't want to eat pork, if they don't, I have no problem if somebody does that. But as Romans 14 says, let them do it in honor of the Lord. And so, um, you know, we could go round and round and, and, you know, I'm sure that many Hebrew roots people would take me through the book of Acts. Um, people would try to give me a better understanding. They would take me to Hebrew or Matthew chapter 5 and incorrectly um, you know, um, dissect that passage and not really understand what Jesus is trying to state in it. We could go round and round. But here's the point. Christ is the key. And if you are trying to make it about anything else other than Christ and what he commissions us to do in this life, in this new covenant that we have through his blood, then you're deluded. 
I would encourage you to go read Philippians chapter 3 because Paul brings this same message. And as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10 when he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him who believes. This point that he's simply making in Colossians chapter 2 is Christ is the key. You've got to have that before you can unlock and understand anything of old. And I'll end with this. In Luke 24, I think it's 42 through 46, Jesus reveals, uh, reveals himself to the apostles. And he says he opens their mind to understand the scriptures, that everything written about him in the law, the prophets, and the psalms would have his fulfillment in him. And he opened their minds to understand it. Up to that point, they didn't understand. But until Christ unlocked their minds, they looked back on that Old Testament and they just saw it as stories. But once he unlocked their mind, they saw Christ in everything. Everything was pointing to Christ. And so I'd encourage you guys, you go through the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Because he's there. And he's the key. Y'all be blessed.